uh, message. Thanks, thanks to Brother Chester for covering last week and talking about Celebrate Recovery. Hopefully you not only learn something for yourself, but also know what this church offers if you have somebody that uh, struggles with some of those things and you can send them to the Celebrate Recovery group. But as we move into the second chapter of Genesis, it says this in Genesis 2-4, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Well, that might confuse some because the last time we talked, we left off with Genesis 1 where we had just been talking about the creation account. And then you go into Genesis 2 and it says, this is the creation account. And you can look at this. Is this, a, is this a second creation account? We just got done reading about chapter 1 talked about creation. It is not a second creation account. It's a theological and historical expansion on what we just read in the first chapter. Kind of like my preaching sometimes. You say, why are you repeating yourself? It's just a theological and historical explanation on what I just... That sounds deeper and better than me just saying I repeated myself. And so um, we begin by looking at the special attention that God gives both man and woman. Because in this day and age, this is a hot topic. It's sensitive. Ooh, what's the role of a woman? What's the role of a man? Don't put me in a box. I can do whatever. Well, let's look at what Scripture says. We don't have to be afraid of what the Bible says. What did God do? What did he say? How did he ordain things? Before sin entered the world, what did things look like? What is God's desire for us as men and women in marriage and gender? Because God did create a man and a woman, and they didn't choose that later on in life. And so we're going to look in week three here of In the Beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, you are awesome, great and greatly to be praised. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We love your word. This is an evening that we gather together in the middle of the week and look at instruction for our lives that comes from your word. So thank you for every man, woman, and child, Lord, that is here in the building, people tuning in online, both in the surrounding area and even around the world. God, we're thankful for technology that allows this instruction to even go beyond these four walls. And so God, anoint me. In your name I pray. Amen. So Genesis 2, 7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. In Hebrew, Adam, Adama means ground. Kind of a wordplay, right? Adama is ground. He took man from the dust of the ground, and guess what name he, he named him? He named him Adam, right? And so the earth remains the definitive reference point for humankind. So we're made from dust. They say from dust to dust. It's really true because I, no matter how alive we feel today, at some point, if the Lord tarries, we will all die. We will be put into a grave and return to the dust and our bodies decay and become dust again. And if we didn't believe in a savior in eternity, that would be it. What an empty existence. But that's not where it ends, but that's where we, we go. And so until the Lord comes back. And, and this passage tells us that life came when God breathed life into us. Previously, we read about God creating animals. But if you remember in our first lesson, which if you missed that first lesson, this is week three, so you missed two good lessons already that you can go back and catch. But um, God gave, in that first lesson, he gave humankind dominion and power over the animals. Now, I did not evolve from them, I have dominion over them. 
Now, I have met some people who have, anybody have a dog? I've met some people that I'm not sure who has dominion over who. <laughs> when someone says, my neck is so kinked up because my dog put part of the bed, took part of the bed, I'm like, you do know you have dominion over the dog. The Bible tells us that God created the animals, that, that Scripture never, it never tells us that God breathed the breath of life into an animal. Never once do you read that God breathed the breath of life into any animal. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but he did do that to the first human being. Only human beings were formed in the image of God. And only human beings took on life because of the breath of God. So you are a special creation. And God puts Adam in this garden and gives him responsibility. And so you look at Genesis 2, 8, 9. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in the Eden, east, in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. But check this out. I find this part intriguing. Because God spoke. Spoke the world into existence, did he not? We looked at that in week one. God said it happened. God said it happened. God said it happened. God said it happened. God said that happened, right? Now we come to here. Could God have said, be a garden, make it beautiful, and it happened? We have precedent. He can create anything. So he certainly could have made a garden just by speaking the garden into existence. But we don't find that. We find that God made Adam. From the dust of the ground. He didn't speak Adam into existence. Now he starts to make something. He makes Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathes life into Adam. But then we go and move on. And in verse 8 it says, God planted a garden. Man, I could. Sometimes I plant stuff and it looks amazing. And it blooms and it looks awesome. And then other times I plant stuff and it doesn't look amazing. And it doesn't bloom and doesn't look awesome. But I can imagine that God would have been a pretty awesome gardener. Isn't it intriguing, too, that when he rises from the dead and he's walking and Mary walks in and says, where have you put the Lord? And she, the Bible specifically tells us she thought he was the gardener. Interesting. Interesting. Because he's just got this knack for creating things and making things so beautiful and so and so he 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 plants a garden and and we know the garden of eden was beautiful but he did not speak it into existence it's almost as though you know and, and this is where i walk away i'm not i'm not preaching this is is this is what the word of god says but i my, my mind starts to wander like why 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 did he not just say, I spoke that, spoke that, and let there be a beautiful garden. It's almost as though that he had just made this man, Adam. And it's almost like he, ha- he needed to teach Adam to work. For those of us who are parents, anyone, either you have grown children, you can remember when they were littler or you have little children yourself right now, and you remember the process of beginning to try to give your child responsibility. Anyone? Okay, raise your hand up high. Okay? Good, good, good. 
Some of you are like, was I supposed to do that? All right, I want you to put the dishes in the dishwasher. And you walk away, and you come back, and you're like, what did you do? Why do you have plates jammed up where the silverware goes? What? That doesn't go there. Or you say, wash the dishes, and you come, and you go to put them away, and you pick them up, and you're like, how could this possibly be deemed or defined as clean by you? There's stuff caked to the plate. How can you say this is clean? And so we get maybe frustrated because we don't want lazy kids around the house. And so we say, quit being lazy. You need to do something around here. But we realize quickly, right, that we can't just speak to a five-year-old, even a nine or an 11-year-old, 12-year-old. Not that I'm talking about my own kids, but um, you can't just speak to them and anticipate like, well, you're going to know what I'm talking about and you're supposed to be an expert on how to do it. I mean, after all, when you took your new job, Hopefully, you're in a quality enough company that they didn't just say, here, I remember one time I, uh, I came out of college and I took a sales position. Oh, my goodness. People think because I have a big mouth that I could just do sales. My dad was incredible at sales. And so they'd be like, well, you can do sales. I hate cold calling. I despise it. I hate it. If you say go somewhere and sell something that someone's interested in and you can sell them on the product, I can do that all day long. But me to go and interrupt your day and walk up onto your doorstep or call your phone and try to sell you cold on something that you're not even interested in, I am not interested in that job. The only job in my life I ever walked off of. But they deserved it. Let me tell you why. So I walked into this job, downtown Milwaukee. I'm like, I'm going to be working downtown. I picture myself in a high-rise building, you know, like, I walked in there, filled out all my paperwork, and he's like, yeah, you can get started. And I was literally like, with what? I found out I was selling credit card processing machines. So I said, well, where do you want me to start? They literally handed me a Yellow Pages, which... Thank God the youth are downstairs. They won't even know what that is. They literally handed me yellow pages, and they said, everyone has a phone. Start calling them. That was my training. I said, well, what about my product? What about, what, 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 are, the, what are the benefits? What are the, well, we'll save them money if they go with our credit card processing machine. As you can imagine, I failed over and over and over and over again. So they gave me an hour lunch break, and I called them after. I was nice. I called. I said, hey, thank you so much for the opportunity. I will not be returning to the rest of my day of work today. Literally the only job I ever. I worked in restaurant from 14 to 26 at the same place. So just know I'm not, I'm not lazy. But that job, I was like, no. Why? Because if we're going to teach them, we, we're going to say, here, I'm going to give you responsibility. Well, I want to teach you what to do. How do you live? How, what are you supposed to do at this point? And so God, he tended and made the garden. And, and, you know, when he first creates Adam, as from what I can see in Scripture, there's zero expectation of Adam. God made him, and then God planted a garden. And in this garden, look at verse 9, it says, the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the, from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, and so God is working. He's making this beautiful stuff. 
But then the sacred space of the Garden of Eden, it's, it says, it, you know, it was, it was separate from the surrounding world because, again, if you missed week one of this series, go back because everything, when God went, since the dawn of creation, God wanted his people and his creation to be separate, sanctified, set apart for the rest of the world. And Adam was in the world, but Adam was but God, God separated Adam from the world. And, and that garden functioned as a sort of a, as a temple or a sanctuary for God to dwell with man. And immediately after creating man, God begins to pursue him in a relationship. Because right from the get-go, God desired to be in relationship with his people. And this is now the beginning of God's pursuit of humankind through the rest of the Bible and even here into the 21st century. But notice the passage says that there were all sorts, all sorts of trees. All sorts of trees grew up from the ground. It's not like the picture that people try to paint of this mean God, where he went, and then dropped a tree here, dropped a tree here and said, you get one of two. Choose one. He put these two trees in the middle, but there were all sorts of trees. It's not like Adam had to choose between one or the other. In one place, I read that the garden could have been 100 square miles large. That's crazy. That's huge. I mean, you could go looking for the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it might be tough to find it. And now God apparently showed Adam how to work and to tend the garden. He now gives Adam this word that even kids don't like, maybe we don't either at times, responsibility. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God placed the man in that garden that he made. So beautiful, so incredible. And he says, I made something, but guess what? Even though he knew that we were going to mess up at times, he says, I'm going to empower you to care for what I made for. Guess what? 21st century, he still made this church, bought it with his blood, and he still, for some odd reason, chooses a bunch of men and women who fail and mess up and are faulty and aren't perfect. And he says, I made this. It's beautiful. It's perfect. But I'm going to give it to you to care for. And with that responsibility comes accountability and a warning from God. Because he goes on in verse 16. He says, Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. Oh, that's so bad. He had the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then the tree of life. And he just had these two choices. No, he planted all sorts of trees. You can eat from every one of them. Except one. Knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you'll die. God established patterns that he wanted people to follow. And notice here in Genesis, in Genesis 2.12, it starts to give a description of the garden. It says, the gold of that land is exceptionally, exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. God wanted his dwelling place here in the garden to be absolutely beautiful, perfect. And it's interesting because you move on many years from that, 
And when God delivers his people out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness and he says, I want you to make an ephod for the high priest. And I want you to make the tabernacle. I'm going, to, I'm going to have you put things in the tabernacle, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And guess what you find in the tabernacle and on the priestly vesture? You find gold and onyx stone. And then you go to the last book of the Bible. As John the Revelator starts to have a vision and he's writing down the things that God gives him in a vision. Revelation 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and earth were disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne. It says, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. Guess what? Leave that up there. Is that not the way he always intended it to be? When he made Adam and Eve, that was his vision. When sin messed things up, he says, make me a tabernacle. Why? He tells us in scripture, so that I may dwell among my people. This was never just about a, a mean God who keeps us from things and rules and laws. And No, no, it was always about, I want a relationship with the people that I created. And so here he says, hey, God's, God's home is among his people, just like he's always wanted it to be. Just like when he created it in the book of Genesis. But now check out some of the things John writes about. He says, and, and, and I'm writing in this place, this dwelling place called heaven. He says, there were, there were three gates on each side, east, north, south, west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And, and, on, the, and on it, they had the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked to me held in his hand a, a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, it was a square as, as wide as it was long. In fact, length, width, height were all 1,400 miles. Imagine that. It's a big place to hang out in. That's why I guess that old audio adrenaline song says it's a big, big house. Some of you got that, and others of you, Google, Google it later. Your kids will have fun. They'll, uh, they play football. I'll just give you a little hint. But uh, then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick. That's some walls. The wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold. And then he starts to write about the foundation stones. And look at verse 20. The fifth stone was the onyx stone. In verse 21, the main street was pure gold. Really, folks, God was looking to restore his original plan. I'm not saying that this is going to be the Bible already says in Peter that the old earth is going to be burned up and the works that they're in. So this is, it's not just a restoration of here. But think about his original plan was, I made my people. I want relationship with my people. I want to commune and dwell with my people. I, I, I did that in Genesis. Sin messed it up. I tried to restore it in the tabernacle, the temple. I, I took on flesh. I filled them with my spirit. Now I'm coming back to get them. And where I am, there you may be also. And, and, and we read even the materials that John the Revelator sees in his vision are the same things that God created in the book of Genesis. And so we see this desire to restore what sin Messed up. 
But just like the Garden of Eden, there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more dying. The Lord built law, covenant, and obedience into the fabric of his relationship with humankind. Right from the beginning, God established parameters with Adam. He said, you can eat of everything. Serving God is so restricting. Really, if there were thousands of trees and God said you can eat of all of them but one, that just doesn't sound restricting to me. If you're a parent and you say you can play everywhere, just don't play where there's traffic in the street. You're so mean to me. You say whatever you want, I'm going to keep you alive. And so God says you can eat of anything but he wanted them to know, you're going to obey. I demand. I do not demand perfection, but I demand obedience. At this point, Adam had the gold, the food, the perfect environment, the responsibility, and even the animals. But something was missing. <sighs> he was lonely. And so God starts to give him a beautiful love story. And he gives him a woman. What's her role in this story? Well, after the fall, where we are today, look what the New Testament says in 1 Peter 3, verse 5. It says, For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now, people will take this, and some watching online, you might tune out now. I don't know. You, no. He just says subjection. I'm out of here. But notice, people twist this every which way, every which way. Let's let the Bible interpret itself. This does not say all women are to subject themselves to all men. It doesn't say that. But we have a biblical command. For women to submit themselves to their own husbands. That was and is God's plan. Well, it's the 21st century. Times change. They do. And principles of the word of God don't change. And so, now my dad always taught me, Gary... If you love God with all your heart and follow your responsibility to love her as Christ loved the church, you will never, ever have to even say the word submission in your home. She will want to follow your lead. It says even in Sarah obeyed Abram, Abraham, calling him Lord. That's, that still doesn't happen in my house. But <laughs> whose daughters ye are. I kind of made a joke. We toured uh, with the Krogs. We toured Leavenworth, and uh, it was a wonderful time. Toured the, the um, military campus there in Leavenworth. And we didn't know. I learned so much. But I guess when one of the generals goes into one of the buildings, they hang a flag outside, and there's a star, and it. it says it's a one-star, two-star, three-star, four-star general. And so they hang it outside the building. I said, that's cool. I said, honey, I'd love for you to do something like that when I come home. And uh, she... Hasn't done it yet. <laughs> if you don't know me, if you're watching online, you don't know me. Please know I'm kidding. Um, likewise, it says, it says, daughters, you are as long as, long as you dwell, not afraid with amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. Now, 
that's interesting because it talked about wives, you know, being, being subject to their husband. But then it says, husbands, you're to give honor, esteem, value. That's what that means to your wife. Even as unto the weaker vessel. Now, ladies, man, that's going that's to, those are fighting words. Oh, what did you just say? Weaker does not necessarily mean that you are less valuable. What this is, it's, 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 it says being heirs together of the grace of life. That your prayers not, but remember, it started likewise ye husbands. And it ends with that your prayers not be not hindered. I meet occasionally, we'll talk with men, they're like, God's just not using me like I want. He's not, I've been praying and I feel like I can't hear him and he's not meeting my needs. And every once in a while, it's good to say, not like, well, pray deeper, go longer, go on a longer fast. Sometimes the question is, how are you treating your wife? Because I have scripture that says, husbands, you want your prayers to not be hindered? And you better understand you're a joint heir of grace with your wife, and you need to value and esteem her. I just said she's a weaker vessel, but that does not mean she's less valuable to me. You are called to esteem and value her so that your prayers are not answered, or so your prayers are answered. In other words, his leadership role in the family does not give him an edge over her concerning their relationship with God. Marriages would be so much better if partners, both of them, would understand this is, according to God's plan, a team effort. The word hindered, prayers not be hindered, it means detained. In other words, if his prayers are to be answered in a timely manner, then he must honor his wife according to the writing of the example of the word of God. And so you look at the wife, the wife was created as a weaker vessel. This does not mean, I know I keep saying that, and it's like, you better address that. That does not mean she was less significant because significance is not found in strength. You know, I mean, it, it would be like if me and Andrew and Scott and Kirby were going to sit down and have a bench press contest, just because I can bench more than all of them doesn't mean... This is just a hypothetical. We have never done this. I'm just, I'm giving myself the benefit of the doubt. But if I could bench more, it doesn't mean they have less value because they don't have the same strength and brute force. Simply means that in the plan of God, he created a woman as a weaker vessel. Now, if you're angry about that, talk to God. It's scripture. But he created a woman to be loved, protected, and provided for, and led by her husband. Now, I know, I remember, I have in my life, answer, I've, I've opened a door for a woman, and that's the way I was raised. And she said, I can get the door myself. I'm like, well, go ahead then. The way I was raised is that you respect the fact that she's a female, and you let a woman go first. And I'm raising my sons to do the exact same thing. Yesterday at small group, a lady stepped away. And one of my boys stepped into her seat, and they thought it was funny. She came back, and I said, stand up, move over. You give a lady your seat when she comes to the room if there's no seat in the room. Now, if you're a woman and say, well, I don't want that, that's fine. That's your choice. It's your prerogative. But I do believe it's the plan of God for a man to care for the gender of the female species that God created and blessed him with. That's old-fashioned. Well, it's ancient, yeah. It's right here. 
And Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit yourselves to, not to men, to your own husband, as unto the Lord. Because God gives this positional authority. And so he says, I created a man, and I have put him in this place of leadership, and I am calling you as a woman to submit to your own husband. And then guys are like, yeah, you know, some of you guys are like, you want to say right now, amen, preach it, brother, but you're scared. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't because there's a word for you in just a few verses. Later it says... And you know, in the New Living Translation, it says, wives, respect your husbands. I do marriage counseling regularly, and I constantly find, and Dr. Em- if you've never read the book Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerich's, it is one of the best marriage books you will ever read in all of your life. It's incredible. But New Living says, wives, respect your husbands, husband, love your wives. Paul wasn't even married, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to write this, called to write this. And almost all marital issues come back to somehow the wife is feeling unloved and a man is feeling disrespected. Sure, a man wants to be loved. But if you ask the man, would you rather be loved or respected? Men are going to say respected. It's the way he created us. Now, we could say, well, honey, I love you. I told you 28 years ago. If it changes, I'll let you know. That don't work. <laughs> a woman needs to feel loved my wife just walked in the room. Uh, yes, women, here's what women want. No. My wife needs to feel loved. And so if I mess up, which I have in 14 years, it's a time or two I've done that, that she has said, yeah, but I feel like you don't notice me. I feel unloved because of this or a lack of this. And so we need to be aware of that. But then when a wife belittles or demeans her husband, he leaves going, I feel disrespected. I don't feel like they're... At the end of the day, affairs happen in homes because a woman is not getting the love that she needs from her husband. She starts looking for it for someone else, someone else, somewhere else. And And a husband is starting to look for that respect somewhere other than his home. My wife does a great job. I know that you can compliment me and say nice things about me, but I know that my number one fan in the world lives in my home and sleeps in my bed. So I don't need to go anywhere else. And I hope that my wife knows that, hey, you know what? He's a knucklehead sometimes, but at the end of the day, he loves me with all his heart. And so when Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. That should be so crucial in our home. And so he goes on and he says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, I know a lot of times you say, women got the short end of the stick here. They're, they're like, submit yourself to your husband. That stinks. This is, this is. And, but then you read on, and he says, husbands, you need to love your wife kind of like, like, like Jesus loved his church. Oh, sure, no problem. That's the most perfect, just unselfish, giving love in the history of humankind. Let me just go ahead. Yeah, I love you like Jesus did. That's like impossible. What, what a high standard for me to live up to. But that's what he calls. Because when I love my wife like Christ loved the church, that respect comes because she says, I want to follow you because I see the way you love me and the way you loved him. 
But we're in Genesis. So look back, because I, I, I have more to say about this, some very intriguing things. We read in a previous lesson, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, look at this. God created us in his image. Look at the specific wording in this verse. It says he created he him. Male and female created he them. It says that God blessed them. And when you, when you read on, to make the image of God, it took both, both man and woman. Okay? Look at the very next verse. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, before sin, messed things up, and the woman's desire was to rule over the man and the curses that he handed out and all this stuff, God was speaking to who? Both of them. He says, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. He, he's giving, it says he blessed them. He spoke to them. He gave them dominion over things. There's nothing before the fall about a woman being lesser or, or any of that. They were truly one in every sense of the word. And you go to Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And all the men said, amen. amen. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called them, every living creature, that was their name. And Adam gave names to all the cattle because Adam was the one that was given that, that authority, that, that power in the garden and, and that dominion over this. But it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. Adam is now given this authority and he's naming animals. He's busy in this particular passage. The woman's not there. Because it says he's, he's given them and there wasn't a help meet for him. Animals weren't attracted to him. Thank God that's another sin. Okay, that shouldn't happen. They didn't cut it for him. So what does God do? Verse 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. See, ladies, good things happen when men take good long naps. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's going to be called a woman. She was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh. So, you know what? We love our moms and dads, but as boys, we ain't supposed to be mama's boys staying at home. We're supposed to leave mommy and daddy and cling to her and be a leader in the home. But he creates a helpmeet. Two words. Not helpmate. One word. Helpmeet. Two words. Well, what's the big difference? Let's look. Calling a woman a helpmate kind of downplays her. Like, I'm here doing this, and that's my sidekick. But see, in Hebrew, help meet, the word is azer. 
It's something more powerful than just like a helpmate. The Hebrew word is only used 22 to 24 times in the Bible. Almost every time this Hebrew word, it refers to be God being our help. God being our Azair. Look to the hills from whence cometh our help. That's that, that, that's that same word. The Hebrew word Azair for God means indispensable help. This is to insinuate that the word means to a woman, she's not a helpmate, a sidekick that just comes, hey, help me out with this. Can you go get my shoes? Like, that's what some guys think. That's not the way God created a woman to be. Help meet is Azair, meaning she's an indispensable component of our lives. <laughs> yes. I might get this message, the link sent to me at some point over the next few weeks. The other Hebrew word here is konegdo, which means she was equal in God's eyes. So when we go back to Genesis 2, we see Adam is still alone. Even after naming the animals, he did not have an azer konegdo or a helper comparable to himself. So God causes the deep sleep, takes a woman out of the side of man. But after God creates woman, after some rib surgery on Adam, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and sin enters the world, and God assesses three curses, and or four curses. And immediately after that, look, Genesis 3.20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Look through Genesis and tell me the first time Eve gets her name. It's right here. It's like she didn't even have a name. There's no name until after sin, after the fall, and then Adam gives, and then she gets her name. But look what the genealogy says about Adam and Eve. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, blessed them, and called What? He called their name Adam. Interesting. In the day, there's a clarification there. In the day they were created. Now she's got a name Eve. In the day they were created, their name was Adam. Eve didn't receive that name until after she, after she and he had sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. Up to that point, God was referring to both of them as one. That's why God says, my desire is a man to leave his father and mother and the two become one flesh. The two one takes on the name. They get the same name. They join, obviously, in physical union, in name, and the two become one flesh because my plan when I created her was that two become one, not different entities with different desires. And No, no, I want you to be in one in team, one in mindset, one in body. She didn't get her name until after the fact of that sin and failure. He took two separate individuals and made them one being, one entity. And there are some spiritual truths here that we can learn from the physical account of Adam and Eve. Adam was put in a deep sleep and, and, and God pulled out a bride. Right? Christ went into a deep sleep, which is what the New Testament calls death. 
And guess what? Out of his side, there came a bride. What, just like the first man, Adam, God reached into the side of his humanity at that cross. And for Adam, it was a rib that became the bride. For Jesus, it was this, John 19, 32. Then the soldiers came, break the legs of the first and which was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead already. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers had to grab a spear and pluck his side. And forthwith there came out blood and water. Do you remember when Jesus shows up to Nicodemus? and says, marvel not that I'm telling you to be born again. He starts talking about blood and water. He starts talking about new birth. He starts talking about uh, uh, the water and the spirit. And it was out of his side that the fundamental elements of Jesus would construct his bride. Guess what? Not getting all gory, but when you go through a natural birth, ladies, what is one thing, two things you're going to see during natural birth? There's going to be blood and there's going to be water. Before that child is born, there's blood and there's water. Before the church was born, there's blood and there's water. And it would flow out. The bride of Christ is the New Testament church that needed new birth. But in order for the birth to be happening, in order for the water and the spirit, in order for the water to be able to wash away sins, someone had to go up on a cross. And then they had to poke that side and blood and water needed to flow to make sure that new birth could take place. And the church is formed by blood and water. The Bible says on the day of their creation, God says God called their name Adam. And while we were still separate, he said, I'm going to give you one name. And even though they were separate entities, God gave the bride Adam's name. And today we are known as the church, as the bride of Christ. And when God gave the bride Adam's name, Adam, and all that power and authority, that woman, that bride, she had access to that dominion because she had the name. She was one with Adam. God birthed the New Testament church, a New Testament bride, out of blood and water. And as the bride of Christ, we have been given a name. And Acts 4.12 says when you step into this water that you are given that name which is above every other name. There's no other salvation, any other, there, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So when we take on the name, that's why when you say, well, I just understand why it, the, 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 the baptism, the method entitles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost versus the name of Jesus. It's not that big of a deal. It's the same concept. I would argue against that because that is when you take on, where do you become the bride? You're stepping into this water and you're saying, I'm taking on the name. I'm making a covenant. I'm making a commitment. And I want that name, Jesus, Jehovah, the Old Testament God, has become my salvation. And when I step into that water, you call that name over me, just like a preacher says, with this ring, do thee wed, uh, and for sickness and in health, and richer for poor. And what, what are we saying when you say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ? It was made 
It was made possible by new birth. The blood and water that he shed that flowed out of his body made this day possible for you to take on this commitment, take on the name of Jesus. And then what does he do? He places his spirit inside of you, which you could get pretty detailed in that. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. But what is that? That's a act where God says, I become one with you and you now have my name and my spirit. And so you have dominion to go out from this place now because you have my name and you have my spirit. And so guess what? Go out and do great things in my name. So this, this Genesis account is more than just, oh, yeah, and then a guy, he created a woman, and she's a helpmate, a sidekick. No, no, she's a helpmeet, an equal and opposite, indispensable help to that man. She took on his name. There was blood and water. He did the same thing, called us the bride of Christ. So we say, huh, let's look back at what his initial plan was, and we can learn a lot about what his plan is for us. Would you stand to your feet tonight? Oh, this is more than just a name. When you study the word, it is incredible the way Genesis connects to Acts. We think this is like two separate accounts. It is not. We start to see God's plan interwoven throughout Scripture from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, on to Jeremiah and Joshua and and Nehemiah and Ezekiel and all through the, the Gospels into the epistles all the way to the book of Revelation where John says, I got a vision. And guess what I saw? I saw some of the same things that were in the Garden of Eden when God said, my plan is to dwell with my people. And here he is. He's getting ready to come back again for his church. And I'm still seeing some of those same things from his original plan because his plan for salvation may have changed here along the line. But his initial, his big plan of dwelling with his people, communing with his creation, loving and have relationship with us, that has never changed. And so tonight... I think that we could just say, God, thank you for marriage, but Lord, and thank you that I'm the bride. I'm not just talking about physical marriage, but thank you that I am the bride of Christ, that I've been able to have your spirit. I've had your name called over me, and now I have authority in that name. And so I just invite you tonight to just find a place to just thank him and, and, and praise him. And, and maybe this is a revelation for some. Hopefully this has enlightened your eyes and your mind and your heart to something maybe you've never seen before. And you can say, wow, God. You always had this plan to be in relationship with me for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I am grateful. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God.